Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Andy Bruins. I'm the pastor of the church here, and you've joined us as we are uh, starting our series. We're about three episodes in, if you like, into a series looking at the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And if you've got a Bible, uh, I'm going to read to you from John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and we're going to read from verse 16. Uh, And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. John chapter 16, verse 16. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child has been born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, You will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, and as we look at uh, these different things that it says about joy, Lord, please speak to us. Help us to understand more deeply what this simple little word means, and may it impact our lives. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, now, children, you know what you're doing this morning, so you have been given your worksheets, and what we're looking for you, from you, is um, you've got to define for me what joy is, so you've got to say what it is, and you've got to tell me what it isn't, and if you write that down, and you take it to Tiago, you might get yourself a prize. The other thing you need to do, and this is is to count the bananas. That's right, you've got to count the bananas. They're in there because of Tiago. Um, ask him about why that is. Um, you've got to count how many bananas there are on there. But don't get distracted by the bananas, okay? The fruit of the Spirit's not a banana. There's a song that goes that way, but we won't sing it. Now, I spent a little bit of time this week reading blogs on the internet. You know what they are, where people have discussions backwards and forwards. Uh, It's what someone's once referred to as the bottom half of the internet when you read comments from blogs. It can be very dangerous. But I did stumble across some very interesting discussions this week where people were talking about why religious people are so miserable. Okay, (laughs) that was the question out there. And here's a couple of choice comments. Because they always have their heads stuck in a holy book with a priest standing over them, commanding them to believe and obey or else. Wow, is that you? (laughs) I don't think that's me. I hope not. Uh, Another contributor remarks this. If we were totally honest with ourselves about religion and God, 
you would find less than half the people claiming to believe do so because of the fear of death or social pressure, not because they actually believe God exists. And of course you'd be pretty miserable if that was your outlook. And so despite surveys actually being taken that find the opposite to actually be true, that people uh, with faith tend to actually be happier and live longer, despite that, somehow the religions of the world seem to have given this impression when we look at them, when outsiders look at them. And actually, it's not that hard to see why, is it? Maybe you've seen these things yourself. Many religions, we thought about this a few months ago, many religions demand dress codes and behavior codes. And it all looks a little bit kind of stiff and difficult. They look, they look restrictive. They, they, look, they don't look joyful and expressive, do they? And those that follow these religions are often busy in prayer or meditation, and they do these things for long periods of time, which seems so dull, doesn't it? And they're often regimented, so they're all doing it at the same time. It seems kind of boring. And most of these people practicing these faiths, it appears, most of them live in a constant state of not really knowing where they stand with their particular God. And that's pretty miserable on a psychological level, isn't it? whether he's mad at them, whether they've done something to upset him, and then something happens in their life, and they think, oh, I must have done something to upset my God. Why would this have happened? I mean, no wonder people don't look that happy doing these things, hey? They might look, some of them might look peaceful. You've seen those people that look peaceful sitting cross-legged with their fingers like this or something. But they don't look joyful, do they? That's not a word that you would associate with religion, per se. But Christianity, listen, has no such excuses for being that way. We shouldn't look miserable. We have not been called into some kind of a religion that demands that we do things that we really don't want to do. Do you get that? You know, it's interesting, this, isn't it? We're not to be going to church looking like as if we're going to go do the weekly shop of shop again, I've got to go spend hours in that thing with a mask or whatever. Some people come to church looking like they're going for dental surgery, don't they? Yeah? Is that you? Shouldn't be you. Really shouldn't. Jesus spoke about his kingdom, about being part of his kingdom, as something really joyful. Think about the pictures Jesus uses in the gospel about his kingdom. He says it's like a great big party. It's like a celebration. It's like a feast. Being in God's kingdom is more like a wedding, not like a funeral, right? In one instance, Jesus described being in his kingdom as being like a man who found treasure in a field. Imagine that, yeah? So he's out walking in a field and he finds a great hall of treasure. And no one's, it's been hidden and no one's ever seen it you know, for years. And he sees it there shining. And so Jesus says, he covers it all over, buries it again. He's really thinking through. And he thinks to himself, I've got to find who owns this land. And he finds the owner and he settles on a price for buying that land. Because he knows if he can buy that piece of land, then everything in that land belongs to him, right? He's, he's looking for, he's rubbing his hands together thinking, I can get this treasure. And it can be mine and it can be legitimate, right? And Jesus says this. He says, and then, in his joy, this man went and sold everything he had and bought the field. 
That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Selling everything that you have. I don't know about you. That does not sound like a fun thing to do. That does not sound joyful, does it? Imagine saying goodbye to the cat as someone takes, takes it home for 20 quid. Right? Would you like that? But this man is now looking forward to something so much bigger than anything that he had possessed, bigger than any of his things, that he can get rid of all of this stuff with joy in his heart. Quite a picture, isn't it? Now, this morning, we're looking at the second part of the fruit of the Spirit, joy. And last week, we looked at the word love. Do you remember? It's the one that's right at the top of the list. And we looked at what it really means. And we saw that when the Bible talks about the love of God, it is very unlike the love that we hear being talked about in the world around us. I hope you got that. The world around us loves with feelings all the time. So we can fall into love, can't we? Isn't that a weird idea? That's not like the love of God. We fall into it, we fall out of it. It's like we've got no control. It's like almost accidental. Love just sort of hits us. But the love of God is, is seen in actions. And it's a decision. Gonna love you. The love of God doesn't require that there's something lovely about you that sparks off these feelings. Instead, it sacrifices and loves people who are unlovable. So now we turn our attention to number two, joy. The fruit of the Spirit of God in the believer is joy, and it should produce joy within us. So what is this fruit? Well, here's a definition. Ears pricking up. Here's a definition. Here's what it is. Joy is a deep down, liberating sense of well-being, you're not going to get this, <laughs> that lives and grows in the heart of a person who knows they're in a good relationship with God. Okay? Now, that was a complicated definition, and you've got to listen to the rest of the sermon to really get it so you can write down in your own words what it means. So, joy, then, like love, is not an emotion. It's not froth and bubbles. Joy has got, listen, joy has got nothing to do with your circumstances. It's bigger than feelings and circumstances. It's something more fundamental and deep, which has its foundations fixed into the knowledge that you are and always will be in a right standing with God. That's where joy finds its anchor. So let's flesh it out by looking at some verses together. First then, this is the first thing you need to get. Joy is a permanent state for the Christian. Wow. <laughs> joy is a permanent state for the Christian. And that's why it's important to see it's not a feeling. Because we know feelings aren't permanent, are they? So have a look at this psalm. Psalm 30, verse 5. You might well know this line. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You heard that verse before? Now that doesn't mean... Uh, that if you, that, you know, the standard thing is to go to bed feeling miserable uh, and somehow something just sort of happens, you wake up in the morning, <laughs> uh, you know, really, really happy. I find, I don't know about you, I find it actually works the other way around quite often. I go to bed just fairly peaceful and I wake up thinking, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I, I wake up feeling miserable, I don't know about you. But do you see what's implied here in this little sentence? Yeah? Christians, first of all, they're not immune to sorrow. What do I mean by that? It means, listen, 
to not be, it means we haven't had a vaccination against sorrow, that we can't catch sorrow anymore. We are not to expect as Christians that life's going to be a bed of roses, that everything's going to go our way in life. Sorrows will come for the Christian. Cherished relationships will end. Yeah? Those friends you thought would always be faithful might just stab you in the back and let you down. We will experience hatred and persecution and pain if we follow Jesus. Our bodies will decay, and they might decay in a way that is painful and frustrating for us. We will likely lose loved ones through death. Sorrows are going to crash against us like waves, because that's what life is like. All through life, that will happen. But here's the point. For the Christian, sorrow is always a temporary thing. But joy is permanent. Sorrow is temporary. Joy is permanent. So what that verse says, the weeping lasts for the night. But in the morning, it gives over again to joy. That's the permanent state. So we can sing that incredible hymn. You know the words, this one? Written by a man who lost four daughters in one incident at sea. He says this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's joy, isn't it? Second thing then about joy. Second thing. Sorrow and joy then can exist together. Oh, that's, that'll mess with your head, won't it? Sorrow and joy can exist together. Now, you get this all over the New Testament. Actually, do you know what? Tiago just reminded us of it uh, when, we, when we celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Do you remember? So Jesus is described as being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet, he, in Hebrews, it tells us that but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So they, they can overlap, they can be together, can't they? And you get it all over the New Testament with shocking statements like this. So James, in James chapter 1, says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. <laughs> or, and then Paul says this. We rejoice in our sufferings. But I want you to have a look, and it's great that all three of them say it. It's something that Peter says. Tiago's taken us through 1 Peter recently. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me read it to you. In this, says Peter, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's amazing sentences there. Here are a group of people. These are very early Christians. And listen, do you, know, do you know the situation they're in? These people have lost, many of them, their homes. They've been forced to live in new places. And where they've gone and settled down in these new places, people haven't really liked them. They haven't welcomed them. And so they've had to suffer abuse on a daily basis, these people, many of them. 
And Peter is talking about how they're rejoicing anyway. They're full of joy, he says. So I want you to understand, though, that that doesn't mean, and don't get this picture in your head, that they are enjoying the things that were being done to them, okay? That's called masochism, right? That's not what we're talking about here. It's not like they're sort of, you know, they're having been given a hard time at school and they're saying, ooh, please insult me a bit more, I do so like it. But do you see what was actually happening when you look at those sentences? Their trials and their suffering rather than making them stomp off and say, how could God allow this? Instead, was proving that their trust in Jesus was the real deal. That's what it was doing. It was proving it was genuine. Instead of turning away from God then, they were clinging more tightly to him in the difficulties. That's an amazing response to suffering, isn't it? Even though, says Peter, they had not actually ever seen Jesus themselves, Never met him, says Peter. They were trusting him even in their sufferings. And it was, according to sentence 8 there, verse 8, it was filling them with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, do you see what he's saying? Because if their joy was impossible to express when they hadn't seen Jesus yet, what would it be like when they did? <laughs> it's just going to explode, isn't it? This is the kind of joy we're talking about. And this is the thing with the real fruit of joy. In a sense, you really just can't describe it. It's indescribable. It's like trying to get someone to understand what it's like to swim in a, a great wild river by showing them a glass of water. It just doesn't really do it, does it? It's just on a whole other scale. Now, you've got to jump in. You've got to actually experience it for yourself to really get it. It's indescribable. Jesus describes, listen, and we're coming to an end here, but please do just keep concentrating. I always put the biggest one up front of the three bits of teaching. Get the biggest one at the beginning, okay? Because we're defining it. So Jesus describes this way that joy and sorrow can overlap. We read it earlier with a picture of childbirth in John chapter 16. So just listen again. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. Now listen, childbirth is frankly horrific, okay? It's horrific. I was betrayed. Uh, everyone had told me, it's so beautiful, you've just got to be there, you know. It's horrific. But at the same time, it is wonderful. It's a wonderful horror. <laughs> For the new mum, it's a time, I guess, of pain and dread, especially if it's your first child and you've never, you don't know what to expect, or probably even more so, actually, if it's a second. And yet, at the same time, Constantly in the background, I think, is a deep joy. Is a deep joy. I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to be a mum. Yeah, you've got that going on in the background whilst all the dread of what's about to happen. So much so, this joy is so strong, so powerful, that once the baby is, uh, once it's all over and the baby is in her arms, 
All of that anguish is forgotten. That's what Jesus is saying here. And they hear the little cooing of the baby in their arms. It's all just forgotten, isn't it? I mean, how else can you possibly explain that a woman would willingly want to have a second child or a third child or be like my mum and have eight? I mean, how do you explain? I don't even know how to explain that. So let's now finish up by summing up our definition with a picture. Are you listening? I think this is quite helpful. Christian joy, then, is kind of like a life jacket, all right? A good definition of joy is, I think, spiritual buoyancy. Do you know what buoyancy means? It just means floatiness, yeah? You put something in that's lighter than water, it always wants to just bubble up and come out of the water. It's when we know deep down, listen, when we know deep down in our hearts that all is well between us and the God who rules the cosmos. When we know that as a result of that, when this life is over, we will have the joy of meeting Jesus Christ face to face in a new creation where there is no more death, no more crying or pain or mourning. Well, it gives a buoyancy a floatiness to our spirit that cannot be ultimately suppressed. It just can't. It wants to keep bubbling up. So our joy is like that life jacket strapped on tight as we bob around in the ocean of life. Picture that. The waves are coming. Waves and sea billows roll. They crash against our face. They threaten to put us under the water. We feel like we might sink. It's not a pleasant experience often. But we will never sink. That's joy. That's what joy is. You won't ever go under. Good. Right, that's our definition of joy. So you should have got that down. But we're going to have a a song now. So here is Colin Buchanan with our children's song, all about the joy of following Jesus. Brilliant. Okay, take your seats now. Let's have a look then at the opposite and the counterfeit of joy. What is the opposite of it? What's the fake version? So what's the opposite of joy? Well, now, that's tricky, isn't it? Again, like love, isn't it? So clearly it can't exactly be sorrow, right? In actual fact, I think we'll see in just a moment when we start looking at the fake. I think that's, that's more to do with... Uh, to do with a, sorrow is more like the opposite of, of happiness, actually. Sorrow and happiness, I think, exist opposite each other. But we'll look at that in a moment. It can't be sorrow, because as we've seen, the joy that we're talking about can be had even whilst we're going through sorrows. But there are certainly you know, ways that we can start thinking, thoughts we can have, ways to think, that can damage our joy, anti-joys, as it were. Uh, there are things that, if you like, and I don't want to stretch the illustration too far, that, that might just let a little bit of air out of that life jacket, you know, just let a little bit of air so it's, you know, it's, not, it's not as buoyant as it used to be, right? It, it'll never let you down completely, but there are things that let the air out. The opposite of joy is, in fact, I think, hopelessness. Joy and hopelessness, they're opposites. I think that's closer to it. Here are some of the things, then, which will try to suck some of the buoyancy out of our joy and make us feel a little bit of a sense of hopelessness. The first is this, fear and anxiety in life. 
yeah, when life starts to overwhelm slightly. We fear and we start to become anxious when we fix our gaze on the waves. You know, we're bobbing around in that ocean of life and we start to fix our, our eyes on the waves themselves, those struggles, those difficulties of life. We look at them. And when we look at the waves, we start to notice just how big they look, right? How terrifying they are. And we look around us and we see others starting to go under. And it makes us, you know, whoa, hang on a minute, I'm starting to really get worried and anxious. And we look then at the life jacket and it seems so small and so weak. How's this little thing going to keep me above the water? And we start to doubt that that jacket's up to the job right? Is God really bigger than my pain? We ask ourselves, has Jesus really, really done enough to save a sinner like me? These are the sorts of things, the fears, the anxieties that start to let the air out, start to rob us of our joy. A second thing is self-pity. Self-pity is another anti-joy. Self-pity takes over when we keep our eyes fixed on ourselves this time. We're looking at ourselves. And we focus on the sorrows, on our lot in life that's been given to us. We focus on that. We become a bit obsessed about it. And, it can, and this is something that can creep up on us, can't it? Just through the wear and tear of life. Nothing seems to go our way. Nothing seems to go the way that we've planned it. You know, this is a great fruit to try and grow in COVID days, isn't it? This is, you know, it's that sort of weariness that I think some of you are feeling. It's crept up on you. It comes through tiredness and monotony, plodding on without seeing any end. And you start to become crabby and you start to become grumpy. You notice that at all? And we become so focused on ourselves that we forget to look up once in a while to stretch our eyes, to look to Jesus, to look to something beyond ourselves. And it robs us of our joy. Thirdly, we can become fixated on self-image. Self-image on ourselves again. What we look like. What people think of us. Rather than finding our value and our worth in what God says about us in his word, we could fixate on the opinions of the world around us, we can let them dictate to us what we're worth. Tell us what we're worth. Am I successful? What does the world think? Do I look okay? Am I clever enough? Does my bum look big in this? We become obsessed of that self-view all the time and it robs us of our joy. All of those things are sources of anti-joy and I'm sure you can think of more. But what about fake joy then? the counterfeit, the fake. You see, you certainly don't want to discover that your life jacket is a fake. I mean, imagine if you go to strap on the life jacket and you suddenly realize, hang on a minute, this thing's made of concrete. <laughs> I mean, that would be an absolute disaster, wouldn't it? The fake version of joy, what is it? The fake version of joy, the concrete life jacket, is happiness. Happiness. Is that surprising to you? Yeah, happiness is a, is a word that came into our language about 600 years ago. I looked this up in, on an etymology website. And it came in the form of the word hap. Yeah? So that's a weird word. Isn't it? I think it was like a Norse word or something. Something from up in northern sort of Scandinavia area. They had this word hap. Hap was the word for chance. 
And we still use it, don't we, in words like have a mishap. You know, it was an accident. I had a mishap. Yep. And therefore, happy actually meant, and still, I think, kind of means, to be favoured by fortune. That's really all happy means. I'm favoured by fortune. Joy comes from knowing that we're not in the hands of fortune, but rather we're in the hands of God. Do you see the difference? That's a big difference, isn't it, between happiness and joy. Happiness is just a feeling, isn't it? It's determined by what's going on right now, by our present circumstances. It's momentary. That's what it is. And again, it can only ever be as stable, as dependable as our feelings, which are not dependable at all. Uh, I mean, if you want to know, I was wondering, I was just thinking to myself this morning, cycling over here, how does the world around us use the word joy? How, when have, do you kids ever even come across the word joy? It's like a bit of an old sort of word, isn't it? Joy, you think joy is just some old lady who lives, lives in a home somewhere, don't you? But here it is. This is what the world thinks joy is, okay? And you're all smiling because it works, because you've confused happiness with joy, haven't you? These are pots of happiness. They give you a moment, a moment of elation as you eat the delicious pot. This might be, this might be the, uh, the um, prize for the best definition from the kids of what joy really is. But that's, that's what the world thinks of joy. You know, that's why when you go to see a stand-up comic or you, you watch a DVD of, of, a, of someone's stand-up, they don't just tell... Imagine this. They just told one joke at the beginning and everybody just spent two hours laughing. <laughs> that doesn't happen because happiness is just so fleeting. It doesn't last but a moment, does it? Happiness is a feeling and it needs constant input, doesn't it, for our circumstances. Now, see, the, the real problem with happiness, I'm going to show you two problems. The first real problem is it has no roots. It's very superficial. It's surface. Jesus told a brilliant story about a farmer sowing seed in his field. And the seed landed on four different soils. You know the story, don't you? But don't tune out. Each soil is a picture of a particular kind of heart and how it responds when that person hears the good news about Jesus. The first soil represents someone who doesn't really want to hear at all. It's, it's like a hard soil, and it just, the, the seed bounces off, right? But listen to what Jesus says about the second one. Listen carefully. Jesus says, The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places, the shallow soil, is a man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, right? Now, is it joy or is it happiness? Okay, let's just think about this. But since he has no roots, he lasts only a short time. Gone. Interesting. It's transient, isn't it? When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. If all you have is the counterfeit version, the fake, a religion that is based on feelings... A religion that has just experienced rather than known by the confidence that comes from knowing and trusting what Jesus has actually done for you on the cross. If all you've got is that fake, that shell, the surface. If what you were expecting was a trouble-free life, happy, happy, happy all the time, 
And what you actually get in life as a Christian is trouble, trouble, trouble for being a follower of Jesus as people laugh at you and call you names and as you grow up they start to report you to the authorities. Okay? If that's what happens, then the happiness will be short-lived. That joy just evaporates. It's just happiness, really. It's not real joy, it's fake. So that's the first problem. It's got no roots. The second problem with happiness, as opposed to joy, is it's easily choked. I mean, we know, don't we? Jesus goes on to say, talks about the next soil. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of life and deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. There's an American pastor called Jim Johnson. He writes this, listen. The most miserable Christians I've ever seen are those who live with a foot in both worlds. They hedge their bets. They have one eye on heaven and one on earth. They call on the name of Christ, but they still try to find security, satisfaction, pleasure or fulfilment from this world. They're riding the fence and they are not happy. It's quite incisive, isn't it? This is like the seed that falls on that thorny, weedy ground. The joy of our salvation will not take root and grow strong unless first those weeds are pulled up so that there's no competition in the heart. We need to put all the eggs of our hope in the basket of Jesus if we're to have real joy. Otherwise, all we've got is just this momentary thing. If we don't, our joy will be very short-lived indeed. So happiness is not the same as joy. It's the opposite. So how do we grow this joy? Well, we're going to look at that after our next song. It's one you might not be familiar with, but seeing as we can't sing it anyway, uh, this is a good opportunity to have a real think about the words. So let's, we can stand if you want. We'll put it up on the screen. Now, we're going to talk a little bit, just to finish up with, about growing this fruit. Don't you want to grow joy? I do. Uh, and uh, if you were here at the beginning of this series, you'll remember that when Paul starts writing about this, this section about the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about how this fruit grows really as a result of a battle. The battle of saying no to the desires of my flesh, doing as I please, indulging myself, and yes to the Spirit of God at work in my life. And it's a battle to be fought by walking close to our master. Close relationship with God. Walking with the Holy Spirit, step by step. And this is one of the fruit of the Spirit where the Scriptures make it abundantly clear that it will really start to grow when we face adversity in life. And that should change your perspective to adversity, shouldn't it? Because you want to grow joy. Our next-door neighbours, when I was growing up in Suffolk, used to buy the most foul-smelling manure in existence, and they used to stick it on their garden. And the whole neighbourhood used to reek for days. I think it's pig manure. It's got a really strong smell. But the plants in their garden always grew brilliantly. I mean, they had a really great garden. To produce the best fruit of joy requires the smelliest manure of persecution and hardship and suffering. <laughs> and it might also require the brutal pruning of, of pain in our lives too. It's through those adversities 
we saw earlier, didn't we, according to James, to Paul, and to Peter, writing in their letters, that joy really starts to grow and, and come to the surface. So it seems to me that if you want to see joy growing, you must especially seek it when suffering comes into your life, when difficulties come. I mean, doesn't that change your perspective on the whole of lockdown and COVID, actually? <laughs> We're reluctant to see this, aren't we? But we've got one of the best situations for growing joy, real joy in our lives we've had for the last year. How so? Because rather than looking at ourselves or looking at our troubles or looking at others, we need to have eyes of faith which look to Christ constantly. That's what we need to be doing, to eternity, to Christ. And I want us to consider a really radical statement from the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was a man who knew trials. He was a tough little, little guy, actually, Paul. At one point, he summed up his ministry like this. This was this is kind of day in the life of Paul. Actually, it's probably more than a few days. But listen, this is what Paul says about himself. You listening? Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, 39 whippings, right? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. People threw rocks at me. Three times I was shipwrecked. I mean, that's just very unlucky, isn't it? I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been in constantly, constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, I doubt there's many of us here that could put our hands up and say, yeah, I've suffered like that, Paul. I know, I know, brother, I know exactly how you're feeling. Yeah? That's some serious suffering, isn't it? And at the same time, Paul says this. Listen, just a tiny sentence. Pop it on the screen. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, that whole list, is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's a big statement, isn't it? What an incredible thing to say. Paul is saying that all of our present sufferings, and I don't believe he's belittling those sufferings in the slightest, but that all of those sufferings, if you were to put them on some scales and weigh them, and put on the one side all of those sufferings, and on the other side the glory of all of God's plans for you in eternity, well, the suffering would hardly register. It'd be like dust on the scales. Staggering thought. One author describes what Paul's saying here as like a, our suffering is being like, like flea bites. They're like flea bites, all of that suffering, when compared to the future glory. So that's the first thing. Mind-blowing, isn't it? Realise that adversity in life is an opportunity to say no to fear and anxiety, to self-pity, and instead to set our hope all the more on the world that is to come, all the more on Jesus and to cling to him and, and you'll know him better through that and that is joy. Perhaps you, um, perhaps you know this brilliant quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis used to describe 
joy as being kind of like a signpost. It's a signpost that takes our eyes off this world and points to what's to come. That's what joy is, he says. It's not a tangible thing. It just points you to something fantastic. He said this in his book called The Way to Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And that's, if all we're seeking is the happiness of this world, we are far too easily pleased. That is not joy. Suffering, then, lifts our eyes off of the mud pies. All the mud pies of the world, and it makes us long to see Jesus. It points us to the greater joy and glory. So suffering is something we go headlong into. It's an opportunity for joy. A second way that joy grows is in a clear conscience. Listen, this is quite important, isn't it? And we kind of know this. As we said at the start, joy grows in the heart of a person who knows they're in good relationship with God. And that's why sin will always rob us of our joy. Sin will do that. A guilty conscience will always do that. Disobedience to Christ. If you know there's something in your life that God's put his finger on, you're just not obeying. Unconfessed sin. Sin that you've never really turned your back on and made a decisive decision. You're not going to do it anymore. It will rob you of your joy. But the solution is easy, in, in one sense. The solution is found in the gospel. And we all know what the word gospel means, don't we? Yeah? We all say it. It's good news, isn't it? Gospel, we translate it usually as good news. And sure, it means good news. But when you look at how the angel sums it up in Luke 2 in the, at Christmas time, yeah, the, the Christmas angel sums it up, he says, I bring you good news of great joy. Yeah? The good news is about joy. Joy that will be for all the people. Because he had come to announce a saviour. One who will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins once for all. I mean, it's the engine of joy, isn't it? If we turn away from our sin, if we repent, if we confess our sin to him and trust him for rescue, we will be forgiven. That's a promise of God. And joy can grow in that heart, that forgiven heart that's right with God. Because there's nothing left to hide. Nothing left to hide. It's completely open, isn't it? There's no secrets lurking to wait to be found out at some later date. We know we're in good relationship with God. A clear conscience. Finally then, and by the way, these are no, by no means exhaustive. But finally, I just want to point out, joy is found in the assurance of our salvation. That is, in being certain that we're saved. Listen to Jesus talking to his disciples. Now, these disciples had just come back from their first missionary trip. He'd sent them out on a trip, and they're really excited when they come back to Jesus because they've seen miracles done through them. Imagine how exciting that would be to have been able to travel around healing people. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus says this to them after they've told him, wow, look, all, all these things happened, Jesus. He says, however, do not rejoice 
that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus gives them a perspective adjustment immediately, doesn't he? Here they are. These disciples have had their best day ever. Everything's gone right this day. They're feeling on top of the world. They're doing what Jesus has asked them to do. They've been obedient. It's gone well. They've had success. And they've experienced the supernatural. It's been an incredible experience. They've dispensed healings to the sick and they've even exercised authority over evil spirits and cast them out. And Jesus says this to them. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice your names are written in heaven. He wants them to see the bigger picture. Something even better than the day they've just had. They are not to find joy in those things, but rather to find joy in the fact that their names are written in heaven. It's a way of saying, rejoice that your name's on God's list. It's in his book of life. You belong to God. You're his. That's where your joy is. And this is important, isn't it? We're not to find our joy, ultimately, in any of the things that we do in this life. Even in our service of God, that's not where you find your joy. Happy though that service might be. But rather, we're to find our joy in the sure and certain knowledge that Jesus has done it all. That we belong to God and that we belong to him. That's joy. Well, let's pray and ask God for help. Father, help us to keep in step with your spirit each day so that you might grow this fruit in our hearts. We thank you for the joy of our salvation, for the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven and that, that, that we are in a right relationship with you because of all that your precious son has done for us at the cross. Help us to remember the hope to which you've called us and the glory that awaits us so that our troubles might start to feel smaller and more momentary in comparison. Help us to take our eyes off of our circumstances. Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves. And help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose good name we pray. Amen.